Carl's comment about dollar bills being legal tender, and that being it alone, is actually part of why I had the church start paying me in gold bars starting in 2018. Gold bars and Bitcoin are, are my, my paychecks. We welcome you to Prairie View. Thanks again for joining us. We're very glad that you're here to worship with us today. And there are several questions that nearly every single one of us, nearly every single person from every tribe and from every generation, has asked at some point in their life. It seems as though from the very beginning, human beings have often wondered, who am I, where did I come from, and why am I here? Some people will spend their entire lives searching for the answers to these questions. They'll turn to genealogy, science, religion, history, and philosophy, hoping that somehow, some way, somebody can give them the answers that they're looking for. And some people eventually find answers that they're satisfied with, and some people don't. Some people come to believe that they exist for a very specific purpose. Some people believe that their existence is random and meaningless. And some people just don't really know. Of course, as you sit here this morning, you might be wondering which category best describes you. But today we go back to the very beginning of the Bible. That is the book of Genesis. Maybe you're already familiar with Genesis and you accept the answers that it offers to those big life questions. Well, for you, a good reminder never hurts. And you may just learn something new. Or maybe you're already familiar with Genesis, but you've rejected the answers that it offers. You just don't buy it. Well, I challenge you to give it one more chance. Or again, maybe you're sitting here and you've never really read Genesis at all. And you're cautiously optimistic, maybe even hopeful, that the Bible has some of the answers that you're looking for. So if you've ever wondered who you are, where you came from, and why you're here... I would propose that Genesis may just have something to say to you. So we'll spend the next 10 Sundays in the book of Genesis covering the big themes of the book. We won't read every single verse, of course, but I hope in March you'll know Genesis better than you do now. And you'll maybe have a little bit more confidence when it comes to those questions of who you are, where you came from, and why you're here. More confidence with those answers than you do now. So today we start with chapters 1 and 2, the story of creation. So with that, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that you brought us here safely, that we have a warm building to sit in and clothes on our backs and food in our stomachs. Thank you for all your provision. But more than what you give us, more than the gifts that we have, more than the material possessions that we have as well, we thank you that you are who you are. We thank you for being kind and merciful and gracious to us. We thank you for being holy and righteous. And Father, thank you that we can gather here, that we can pray to you, we can speak to you, we can read from your word. All these things are undeserved, and yet you give them to us. 
And we are in awe of that. So, Father, be with us this morning as we read from your word. Thank you for who you are and for what you do and for what you've given to us. Thank you for your son, your spirit, and your church. And we ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In those first two verses of Genesis that we may know so well, we learn quite a bit about both God and the world that we live in. In just those two verses, we learn that God is eternal. In other words, he is uncreated. He has always existed before our world ever came into being, and he will always exist. But then on top of that, we learn that our world is not eternal. There was a point when our world didn't exist. The heavens and the earth had to be created by someone. They didn't come from nothing. And that someone who created them is God. But then most specifically, the first two verses of Genesis tell us about the state of our world after God first brings it into being. Genesis tells us that it is without form and void. In other words, the world of Genesis 1, 1 and 2 has not yet been assigned its purpose, its function and its order. The world is there, but it's chaotic. But then something happens. God's spirit hovers above our disordered world. And for the first time in the Bible, though far from the last time, God speaks. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. In Genesis one, that phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said, occurs time and time again. The psalmist hits on this in Psalm 33, verse 6. He says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. God speaks our world into being. Genesis tells us that this happens over the course of six days. If you look closely at those six days, there's a pretty discernible pattern. In days 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 1, God forms the world. In days 4 through 6, God fills the world. So he creates everything the world needs to function properly. He creates morning and evening, the seasons, the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the land, and the seas. He fills it with plants and animals, fish and birds. And then last, but certainly not least... He creates humans. And when God is finally done, he looks at it and says that it is all very good. On day seven, God steps back to rest from the work that he has done. He doesn't rest because he's tired. God doesn't get tired. But he rests so that he can bask in the glory of his new creation. And deservedly so. Now that, of course, is a quick overview of Genesis chapter 1. And what's clear so far is that ultimately, this book we read is about God. 
His name appears roughly 35 times in the chapter. So after reading Genesis 1, there should be absolutely no confusion about who brought the world into existence. Our world is here because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made it. Our world functions and sustains life because God spoke. This was not an accident. It was anything but random. It wasn't some vague forces of nature. And despite all the different origin stories out there from different religions, it definitely wasn't someone else's God. Scripture makes it very clear that there is one God who did this, and it's the God we read about in the Bible. But of all the days of creation, there's one that gets much more attention than the other days. That, of course, is day six, the day that God creates mankind. Genesis chapters one and two feature two separate accounts of God creating Adam and Eve. Each one of these accounts is unique. Each emphasizes different aspects of God creating mankind. The two accounts are not contradictory. They're intended to be two sides of the same coin. And yet, despite their differences, both accounts make one thing very clear. They make it clear that from the very beginning, humans like you and humans like me have a very specific role to play in the world that God has made. Jump forward to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and we start to see this develop. We read there. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So in this first account of God creating man, we see several different ways that God sets humans apart from all the other good things that he has made. The first thing that sets us apart is that man is said to be created in God's image. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, when we say that we're created in God's image, we don't mean physical image. We're talking about deeper things such as consciousness and morality. God made us basically capable of perceiving that he exists. God created us capable of making ethical judgments. But perhaps most importantly, God created us in his image to show the world what he is like. We are meant to serve as God's representatives. When people look at our lives, 
they should learn a little bit about God. And being created in God's image also means that humans are qualitatively different from everything else in creation. All the other stuff that God made, plants and animals, birds and fish, land and sea, sun and moon, all those things are good. They all have purpose. They all have function. But they aren't created in God's image the way that humans are. And then the second thing that somewhat sets us apart in the book of Genesis is we read that we are created male and female. Now, of course, as we all know, that's not just true of humans. But in Genesis chapter 1, it is only stressed when it comes to humans. In God's wisdom, he created us differently, male and female. And according to the book of Genesis, humanity best flourishes when we recognize and embrace these differences. And then thirdly, one thing that makes us different from the rest of creation is that humans were given the task of subduing the world and having dominion over it. God gave us the job of stewarding and caring for his creation, not abusing it or exploiting it. Perhaps more than anybody, Christians should care about how we treat our world. Because scripture tells us that it was created by God. And it is specifically our job to tend it and manage it. So account number one tells us that humans, both male and female, are created in God's image. It tells us that male and female are not the same. But then before we move forward, I cannot stress how important Genesis 1, 26 and 27 really are. Those verses about being created in God's image. Those verses are so important because they have a massive impact on how we view ourselves and how we view each other. It's a little bit harder to hate someone or view someone as worthless if you remind yourself that they are created in God's image the same way that you are. So I cannot stress enough how important those verses are. But now we move forward to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. We read there. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then jump forward to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So in account number two of mankind's creation, we get some interesting details that weren't included in account number one. So, for example, we learn that God created the man from the dust and breathed life into him. That God was so intimately involved in creating mankind reminds us that we were originally made to be in close relationship with God. This first man, named Adam, is commissioned to tend the Garden of Eden. This garden is a wonderful place where Adam will have everything that he needs to survive, and then some. He's given only one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we'll talk about that more next week. But soon after Adam begins his work, for the very first time, God says that something is not good. Adam needs a helper. And as good as the animals are, they aren't good enough for this role. It's worth noting that the term helper is not meant to indicate inferiority. It indicates difference in role and function. So saying that Eve is Adam's helper does not mean that Eve is qualitatively worth less than Adam. That's not what it's saying at all. It simply means they're functionally different. So God puts Adam to sleep and creates Eve from one of his ribs. Not only are Adam and Eve different from the animals, but they're different from each other. Adam came from the dust and Eve came from the rib. One commentator named Matthew Henry writes this. Eve was created not out of Adam's head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Adam and Eve are equal, but different. And even though Adam and Eve are different in so many ways, they were quite literally made for each other. They complement each other perfectly. Adam recognizes this and praises God for it. When he sees Eve, he says, at last, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
These two people are meant to loyally stick together in marriage and to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that Genesis 1, 26 and 27 are incredibly important to how we view ourselves and how we view each other. Well, in the same way, Genesis 2, verse 24, is a bedrock passage when it comes to how we understand marriage. For example, when Jesus addresses divorce in Matthew chapter 19, he looks to Genesis 2, 24. When Paul confronts believers guilty of sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6, he goes to Genesis 2, 24. And later, when Paul writes about how marriage is intended to reflect Christ's love for the church in Ephesians chapter 5, and he guesses on where Paul goes, he goes to Genesis 2, 24. So if you're looking for a biblical understanding of humanity, go to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And if you're looking for a biblical understanding of marriage, go to Genesis 2, 24. If you're studying these things, you simply can't ignore the book of Genesis. Now, so far, this has been a bird's eye view of these two chapters. And you may have known much of this already. Some of it may have been new. However, as we've been reading, you may have had a few questions come up along the way. Some of these questions are hotly debated in the Christian world. And you may have even thought that we were going to sidestep them entirely. Well, we're not. Because if you didn't know, lots of people disagree in lots of different ways about how to understand Genesis 1 and 2. So a few of the bigger debates, a few of the bigger questions that are often asked. Number one, when did this all happen? In other words, how old is our world? Lots of people try to answer that question for us, and some answers may be more convincing than others. But the truth is that if we stick to Genesis, the answer isn't given. Why not? Well, because that's not the main point of these chapters. Genesis 1 and 2 were not written so that we could speculate about how old the world is. They were written so that we would know with certainty who made it. Again, God's name is repeated 35 times in Genesis chapter 1. It's a chapter about God. Question number two that often comes up. How did this all happen? Was there a big bang thrown in there somewhere? Did some form of evolution take place along the way? Well, again, many Christians disagree on this. I, of course, have some personal thoughts that I'd be happy to share if you're ever interested or if you need help taking a nap. But our church doesn't take a formal stance on it. So I'll say it again. The main point of Genesis 1 and 2 is not when all this took place or even the finer details of how it all took place. What matters most is that you know who did it and that you know who did it with certainty. And then finally, one more question that often comes up. What about the days of Genesis? Did this really all happen in six 24-hour days? Are the days symbolic of some longer period of time? Or are the days just some poetic or stylistic device 
that the writer employs. Well, again, many Christians have different opinions. We can have many significant disagreements about how Genesis 1 and 2 function and still agree that it is the inspired and authoritative word of God. And of course, with all these questions, I'd encourage you not to miss the forest because you're looking at one tree. By all means, do your research on these questions if they interest you. Come to firm conclusions and defend them when you see fit because there are endless resources available. But do it with humility and with respect. And resist the temptation to divide the body of Christ over issues that are not central to the message of the gospel. So again, we can disagree about when it happened. We can even disagree about many of the details of how it happened. But the one thing we can't disagree on is who did it. That's what Genesis chapters 1 and 2 make abundantly clear. But that being said, there is one verse that we haven't read yet. And it's Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, the very last verse of the passage. We read there. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This image of Adam and Eve standing before God, standing before each other, standing before the world, naked and unashamed. That is a beautiful picture. They had nothing to hide from each other. They had nothing to hide from God. They were in perfect harmony with the world that God gave them. There was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no humiliation because there was no sin. But believe it or not, Every single verse after this one that talks about nakedness, every single one of those verses is in the context of guilt, shame, poverty, humiliation, sin. Simply put, after Genesis 2.25, something happened and something changed everything. So for that, come back next week, because as we read Genesis 3, we'll learn what exactly went wrong and why a perfect savior and a sacrificial cross were needed to make it right. But as we close, let's go back to those big questions that we talked about earlier. Question number one, who am I? Well, according to Genesis, you are a bearer of God's image qualitatively different from the rest of creation. Whether you're old or young, rich or poor, believer in Jesus or non-believer in Jesus, you can't change the fact that God created you in his image. Many our world tell us that some people are worth more than others. We're told that an unborn child is nothing but a clump of cells. We're told that the person with mental or physical disabilities is a waste of resources. We're told that the elderly person who can no longer speak, think, or work the way they used to is a burden. These are lies. Every single human being is created in God's image with an inherent dignity that none of us can take away from them. And we should treat them as such. It's also worth remembering 
when the world tells you that you're worthless or when you're tempted to look at somebody else as worthless. Genesis tells us that you and they are created in God's image. Another question we ask, where did I come from? Well, Genesis says that you came from God himself. It says that you are not an accident. You are not the random product of biology. You are not just another animal brought about by some combination of nature and chance. You were created by God himself. And then that last question, why am I here? Well, according to Genesis, you're here to reflect God's image. You're here to steward his creation. You're here to be in a harmonious relationship with him, with the people around you, and with the world. But, as we'll see next week, sin gets in the way of that perfect ideal for every single one of us. And again, as we'll see next week, and as we remind ourselves every Sunday when we take communion, the only solution to that problem is Christ. The only way back to this flourishing relationship with God is by believing in his son who died for us and rose from the grave. But let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, thank you that these big questions of life, of who we are and where we've come from and what we're here for, we don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate about those questions because you give us answers in your word. So, Father, I pray that we would remember that you made everything. That you deserve all the credit. That the world we live in and the lives that you've given us are not random. There's purpose, there's function, there's order to our world and to our lives. And you get the credit and the glory for it. And Father, next time we're tempted to view other people as worth less than us. Or when we're tempted to buy in to when people tell us that We're not worth as much as other people because of our flaws, because of our sins, because of our problems. I pray that we would remember that we are created in your image along with everyone else. And so, Father, help us to treat people as though they're created in your image. And, Father, as we read the book of Genesis and see this picture of Adam and Eve in this wonderful place with no guilt and no shame and no humiliation... Remind us that the only way we can return to that pure relationship with you is through Christ. And so, Father, thank you that he came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, and he will return. And, Father, we look forward to the day, we long for the day, when you will make this sinful world into something new once again. That you will make our world look a little bit more like the Garden of Eden. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.